Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsradio.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies, 1500 AM and 1039 FM HD2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Ross. Coming up on today's show, it is the first day of fall. And we'll tell you what makes it the first day of fall. Are you addicted to taking selfies? Well, we are here to help you. We'll tell you about some apps to keep your kids off the phone while they're driving. Amazon will soon be delivering packages to some cars. South Korea's largest cryptocurrency exchange currently under investigation. And in Profiles in IT, we will talk about Jan LeCun, a computer scientist who is in charge of artificial intelligence for Facebook. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Yes, we got an email from Carl Tyler. Dear Dr. Schertz, I've been reading about the new DNS service, that's domain name system service, that Cloudflare is offering. It is supposed to be faster and more secure. Could you explain DNS and how Cloudflare can make DNS more secure for all of us? The installation instructions for running Cloudflare's DNS service is for computers, cell phones, tablets. Do I have to put the 111 in my router too? Thanks for a great podcast, Carl Tyler. Well, Carl, Cloudflare is a new consumer-focused domain name service. It started April 1st, 2018. Now, they do promise speed and privacy. I was looking over their website. Now, what they do, they've managed to make an agreement with uh, with the Internet Numbering Group, and they secured the domain, the the number, the internet, the IP address of 1.1.1.1, four ones, which uh, which they use. And so, if you put in HTTPS 1.1.1.1.1, four ones, <laughs> you will actually go right to the to the Cloudflare DNS. And it's it seems like a joke, but actually it works. I went right I went right there. Now they're competing with OpenDNS, which is a which is a paid service for domain name service, and Google DNS both exist. Now Cloudflare is focusing on privacy, and they promised, and so that's really their their big thing here. So let's talk about domain name systems, the domain name service. Whenever you type in a web, uh, say a, a website into your a browser, suppose Stratford.edu. Well, the internet doesn't really use English names. It uses, you know, a digital sequence of zeros and ones. It uses an IP address, which is digital. And so what happens is that you type in whatever website you want, like Stratford.edu, and it sends that request to a domain name server. The domain name service says, oh, the IP address for Stratford University is this, and it sends back the IP address. <clears throat> and then your browser makes the request on the Internet 
to that actual IP address. And so you, it's like a lookup table. And so if you want to do anything on the Internet, you've got to have a lookup table that converts English domain names or Chinese domain names or whatever language you're in to a particular digital uh, address. That's the domain name service. Now, the, D, the domain name service is typically offered by your Internet service provider, but many times they don't offer a domain name service very fast. And so you sit there, you make the request, and then you wait to get the response, and then you feel like the Internet's slow, but actually their domain name service is slow. And so people started uh, using other domain name services. So instead of, instead of say, using the, um, the address of the domain name server that's given to you by your uh, Internet service provider, you put in another address for a domain name server and go out and make that request. So Google DNS came out. They, Google just wants to make everything faster, so they, Google has a DNS service out there, which, uh, which is quite fast. There's Open DNS, which is actually quite good. But the issue is all of your requests are not necessarily erased on those DNS services, and people worry that, in fact, you may um, that they may use it or they may sell the information they know. They say, look at this particular place. They're always requesting this particular website, and then maybe you'll, you'll get more ads. So Cloudflare says they wipe the DNS logs uh, within 24 hours. And so that's why they say it's more private. And they say it's, um, it's faster because they are setting up um, in data centers all over the world Cloudflare, um, Cloudflare servers. So there's always going to be a, D a domain name server close to you. So you, you'll, you'll, get, you'll get a very quick response. Now, Cloudflare DNS supports DNS over uh, TLS, which is one form of encryption, or else they, the standard DNS over HTTPS, which is the normal secure encryption that you have going to the websites. They support both of that. And, um, and they, they're, <clears throat> I looked up their global response. You can actually go to some, uh, you know, some websites that rate um, domain name servers. So, for instance, Cloudflare's DNS, when they when they look at global response times, looking at looking at requests from all over the world, their global response time is 14 milliseconds. Um, the Open DNS, their global response time is 20 milliseconds, and the Google DNS uh, response time is 34 milliseconds. So in fact, the data shows that Cloudflare's DNS is the fastest one, and they purport that it would be the most popular one. So if you want to configure your home network to use Cloudflare, you do have to put Cloudflare's IP address into your router. So you have to go into your router, and, and there's, a, there's a place where you have to put in the, uh, the address of the domain name server. So you simply put in 1.1.1.1, and, and then all of your DNS requests will, be, will shoot out to them. You, you can you can also reconfigure your cell phone if you want to use that Cloudflare service, and um, and what they're doing they they offer this to the consumers free of charge, but businesses have to pay, and so they make their money on the on the on the businesses and and they want uh, and so uh, but for consumers free of charge doesn't cost anything and they make their money on somebody else. So Cloudflare actually got very good ratings, Carl. So you could you could certainly use it without any 
without any problems. I've I've tried both Open DNS as well as Google DNS. They're all they're all pretty good because the small differences in latency are are not really that great. We got an email from Gene. Uh, Dear Doc and Jim, I have a Samsung Galaxy 5, no, S5 phone, and I've been very satisfied with its performance for the most part. Lately, it's been doing some quirky things. If I choose a wallpaper, it keeps it briefly and then goes to other wallpapers without even telling me. It just reverts back to other wallpapers. And I don't like the look of those other wallpapers. It will suddenly enlarge the screen, and then I'll have a red line around the parameter. It'll be virtually unresponsive for a period of time. It corrects itself eventually, but this is very frustrating when one wants to use it now, and and, and I don't want to wait. Uh, also, why does Google Assistant just keep popping up? I don't want Google Assistant. So huh? if, if I want it, I'd rather click on the icon than have to keep popping up and asking me questions. Well, um Gene, many people are complaining about this wallpaper reset uh, on the phone, on the Samsung phone. That is, it seems to be a big problem. Now, there are a couple of ways to, to handle that problem. You could wipe the cache partition because it, it cache partition, it basically remembers, temp, it, it, it has, it's a temporary storage location and it, and it remembers prior settings. And you just may want to wipe out all prior settings from the cache partition to keep it from resetting. And if that doesn't work, you can reset the phone. So people have had both methods work. Wiping the cache partition is probably the best because if you reset the phone, you got to reconfigure everything because you're, you're going back to factory default, which means you've got to set it up like a brand-new phone, which is a pain in the neck. Now, if you have a backup of your phone, you could actually reset it and then restore it. Uh, and then you don't have to do all that, but it's just a little bit more complicated. Now, to wipe the cache partition, you need to use the Android system recovery sequence. Now, you follow these steps. Turn the device on, off, and then press and hold three buttons. This may make it complicated. The volume up key, oh, good grief. the home key, and the power key. So you hold three buttons, volume up, home, and power. I'll have this written down. Then, as as soon as the phone vibrates, you release the power and home key and keep holding the power up key or the volume up key until the Android recovery menu displays. And then when it displays, it'll take several seconds to come up. You just simply scroll down until you see to the line that says wipe cache partition, and then you press the power key to select that. It'll wipe, and when the partition is complete, the system will reboot. Now, that has worked for a lot of people, so that uh, that's what I would try first before you do the re reset. Now, also, you're frustrated by this Google Assistant. Well, here's how you can turn off that Google Assistant. you got to open up the Google app, and there's a little sort of hamburger menu on the top left. It looks like a little hamburger bun. Click on that, and uh, it I mean, it looks like three parallel lines. You click on that, and then a menu will come up. Click on Settings, and then you select Your Feed toward the bottom, and then simply toggle off the feed, and then you won't get it. So you want to go to the uh, Google app, and then you click on the three bars up the upper right, click Settings, then select your feed, which is near the bottom of the options. Touch the switch to the right of feed and turn it off, and that will turn off your Google Assistant. Uh, actually, a lot of people have complained about that, too. 
So you're not alone. You've got company there. We got an email from Doug in Baton Rouge. Dear Dr. Shirts, hi to Jim and Mr. Big Voice. Could you explain? Yeah, could you explain the role that crystals play in computer timing speed? I understand that crystals generate a certain frequency, but how's that amplified to the gigahertz range in computers? How many different clock rates are there in a personal computer, or is there some sort of other mechanism that creates a computer speed? The first electronic general purpose computers, ENIAC, was a 100 kilohertz clock. Now, in the Intel Pentium 4, they had a clock rate of 3 gigahertz. Since then, personal computer speeds have not improved much beyond 3 gigahertz. The, and so, are there... Um, are, are there more clocks in there? How does this how does this all work? It seems like the chip manufacturers have the ability to create integrated circuitry with 16 nanometer size, so the clock speed should actually be faster. What's holding back the clock speed on these things, and how does all that work? Well, first of all, Doug, there is only one master clock in your computer, only one. Because if there would be more than one master clock, you'd always have you'd always be trying to. How could synchronize. you have two? You have to be synchro- Yeah, you can only have one master. Yeah, I mean, if you have two masters, it just creates conflict. So there's only <laughs> one master clock, and it's controlled by a quartz crystal. Now it turns out quartz is a chemical compound, silicon dioxide. And the interesting thing about quartz is that's piezoelectric. That means if you squeeze it, it generates a tiny current. So the opposite is also true. If you pass electricity through the quartz, it vibrates at a precise frequency. So they basically have this little piece of quartz, and as it vibrates, it generates a, a bit of electricity, and then they have feedback to the quartz crystal that keeps it vibrating at its resonant frequency. Now, since quartz does not expand or contract very much with temperature, it's fairly stable. So a typical quartz crystal operates at 32,000 times a second. That's that's your typical thing, and they and the electronic circuits count the number of vibrations, and then if you have different clock speeds, they simply multiply that. So you start out at your base rate of thirty-two thousand, and you can multiply it, and you can you know to higher and higher clock speeds. So the CPU clock is simply a multiple of the master clock speed. Now, as far as processing speed is concerned, the reason we're not getting faster or we're not getting smaller devices is that we've reached the quantum limit. As they make transistors smaller and smaller, you see transistors, you know, depend on oxides that that produce barriers to electron flow. You change a voltage and the electrons flow. But when it gets very, very small, the oxides don't provide much of a barrier to the electron. They can tunnel through. You know, it is so thin that they tunnel through, and once you start getting tunneling effects in the transistor, it doesn't have the normal behavior. So they're reaching, they're reaching um, the, the quantum limit. They can't go any faster. And how they've gotten around it is that they're making CPUs with multiple cores, so they can do more parallel processing. They're also uh, in the research. They're trying to stack it up and get a 3D, a, you know, a 3D. Uh, chip that will have uh, higher device density without going smaller. But I think this multi-core thing is, is going to be is probably the, the way we're going to go. Like, you know, the Intel chips now have five, set, five or seven cores in them all running in parallel. We got an email from Rick in Niceville, Florida. Dear Dr. Schertz, I need to replace my external hard drive, and I'm considering my cloud home by Western Digital. Is this a good product or other 
comparable, comparable products out there for home use. Also, does MyCloud have a security protection to prevent hackers from accessing my home files and pictures over the Internet? Because it's my personal cloud. You, you can access it over the Internet. As a suggestion for a person to feature on Tech Talk, if you already haven't done so, perhaps you could highlight the father of the disk drive, Reynolds B. Johnson, the American inventor and computer pioneer, who I was a, we have done you've him. done that years and years and years we ago. We have yes. done it. Maybe maybe With time for a maybe we'll resurrect him again. Might have to. Yeah. His other inventions include automatic tech scoring equipment and video cassette tape. Yeah, we have done him. He's an interesting guy. Maybe we'll bring him back up. Well, um, Rick, the Western Digital MyCloud Home Device, they've gotten really good reviews. Now, I'd make certain that you get my MyCloud Home Dual Drive. Now, the Dual Drive is set up as a RAID 1, which is a uh, RAID is a way to have multiple uh, multiple um, d devices uh, connected to your uh, computer, multiple drives connected to your computer. And if you're running RAID 1, it means that the two drives are exact mirror of each other. So when you store something on drive 1, the same thing is stored on drive 2. RAID, by the way, stands for a redundant array of independent disks. And RAID 1 is simply runs two drives that are mirroring. Now, that's a true backup system, Rick, because you see, I mean, disk drives fail. But it's very rare that two disk drives fail at the same time. So if you're running RAID 1 and one of the disk drives fails, you just pull it out and put in another disk drive, and then all the data from the surviving disk drive is copied to the new disk drive, and, it re and the RAID reestablishes itself. So you have a very robust backup system if you've got a dual-drive MyCloud home system, a dual-drive MyCloud home system. If you just have a single drive, it's not really a backup. So you've got to also leave all the files on your computer. So you, all files you want to have at least two places because hard drives do fail. Now, if you want to get a bigger le level of protection, uh, you know, you, you may want to have a backup at another location. Like suppose your, I mean, suppose your house burns down. Yeah. Then, the, and you got, and your drive's in the house, you're going to lose that. So, so businesses, typically have backups at another location, and that, that gives you even a more robust backup system. Now, like a lockbox at the bank, or what do they call those? A, um, you know, the um, yeah. people used to keep their valuables at the bank. Yeah. What do they call those boxes? Yeah, let's see. I don't know. Uh, uh, it, it'll come to me in a yeah. minute. Sorry. Yeah. Safety, Safety deposit. deposit. Thank you, Andrew box. Mitchell, with the tip-in. That's tip right. That's why we keep him around. That's right. Now the four, among other reasons, the four ter now a four terabyte dual drive is three hundred nine dollars. A sixteen terabyte dual drive is six hundred ninety nine dollars. Those are actually pretty good deals. Now another competitor to this space is Seagate Central. However, its single drive system it's only a single drive system and is capped to four terabytes. Now reviewers love the Seagate Central because it's designed to work as a whole house central media library for sharing and accessing video games. So you can put all your media, all your music on that drive, and you can share it all over the whole house. Uh, by the way, uh, Western Digital issued a firmware patch in March and April of last year 
So you want to make sure you got the latest firmware patches on there before connecting the Internet. They did have some security issues, but they're fixed. So the bottom line is Western Digital MyCloud Dual Drive is a good choice. You know, safety deposit boxes, a lot of times they're fireproof. And mm-hmm. so if you even have a safe at home, generally those are fireproof. Yeah, so I, I guess you, you could, could. You could do that. You could, I mean, it's not maybe not the most It's another thought. economical yeah. choice, but yeah, it's one another, thing. I guess I've never heard of a hard drive inside of a safe, but you know we'll have to think about that. I have a, I have a coworker who who we were talking about a computer disposal the other day, mm-hmm. and he takes all of the drives out of his computers and saves them so he can get rid of the box, but he so he doesn't have to worry about anybody getting his data, mm-hmm. and if he has a failure, he's got he's got that drive that he can just plug in somewhere else and get, you know, what he needs off the old drive. Uh, yeah, I mean, I do that too, Jim. Uh-huh. But so now at home, I've got this. How many of these do you have? Uh, about eight. Really? And the, the it's thing, not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea. It doesn't but, take up that much space. Yeah, but you know, but then you got to put them in, and then the technology changes. So it, it's so such a big project. But I, but they're there, and if I want them. Mm-hmm. And so, but it's one of these things that it's too good to throw away, so I just keep them, and they just keep accumulating. But yeah. that is, if you get rid of your computer, take out uh, the hard drive. Of all the good... stuff that you save, that's probably a good thing to hang on I'd to. I'd say so, too. But now I've, I've become cloud-based. Ah. See, yeah. cloud-based. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you immediately or certainly at the next show. It's Saturday morning, and this is Tech Talk Radio Heard in Washington, D.C. on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2. Watch us do the show, download the Periscope app to your device, and follow us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has experienced IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with exceptional Accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with the future in cybersecurity. Learn more about Stratford's up to $15,000 IT scholarship competition. Application deadline is September 30th for those who qualify. Register today at stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Jan McCoon. Jan McCoon. Jan McCoon is a computer scientist with contributions in machine learning and computer vision, as well as mobile robotics and computational neuroscience. He's the founding father of convolutional neural nets, which I'm going to explain. And most importantly, he's director of AI research at Facebook. 
And artificial intelligence and machine learning is just taking over. Mm-hmm. Jan McCune was born near Paris, France in 1960. Now, when he was young, he liked to tinker around, and he built a lot of radio-controlled, ultralight, battery-powered model airplanes with unconventional designs and unconventional propulsion systems and very unusual construction techniques. I looked at pictures of all of his different devices. He had all kinds of wings, all kinds of structures. He was doing this as a young boy. Hmm. He was quite the uh, scientific guy back then. He received a diploma from ESSIE in Paris in 1983. Could you uh, pronounce that, Jim? Uh, nope. You're on your own. E-S-S-I-E-E, École Supérieure Electro, uh, yeah. Electrotechnique et Electronic. Yeah, okay, good enough. In 1983, it's a French school there in Paris. No, I never yeah. would have known that. In 1987, he received his Ph.D. in computer science from the University of Pierre and Marie Curie. Huh. Who would have, who would have known that? Who thought that? Now, while he was there, he proposed a form of backpropagation for neural networks. Neural networks are the uh, basically the structure which is used for all this machine learning. These are artificial neural networks. And, you know, as the brain operates with neurons, they try to emulate how the brain works when they made artificial neural networks. That's how they came up with this machine learning. And he was working on that back in the late 1980s. And the basic idea with neural networks is you got neurons and they're connected by synapses. The little synapses connect the neurons. And the synapses change value as you learn. And as the synapses change value, it turns out that the neural network has a certain pattern of activity where certain neurons are on, certain neurons are off. And that pattern, that activity pattern is actually the memory. And you bake in a particular activity pattern by by adjusting the values of these synaptic connections. And these synaptic connections shift as you learn, and that's the whole process of learning. So he developed something called backpropagation, where you actually have multiple layers of neural networks, and you propagate from the end, uh, from the final layer to back to the prop layer, and then you try to find a way to adjust all of these synaptic values so that you get an output that corresponds to the input. And um, so he began working on that back in the uh, back in the mid the late 80s, and that's when it was becoming very popular. After graduation, he did his postdoc work at the University of Toronto in Jeffrey Hinton's lab. Now, Jeffrey Hinton was a big uh, was a big machine learning guy. In 1988, he had joined the Adaptive Systems Research Department of AT&T, and there he developed biological-inspired models for image recognition, and those were called convolutional neural networks. And he was one of the co-founders of convolutional neural networks. And I'll explain what that is in very simple terms. Okay. You see, if we had a fully connected uh, neural net where you got layers, where every neuron in layer one is connected to a neuron in layer two, and every neuron in layer two is connected to a neuron in layer three, so that the layers are fully connected... That leads to a computational nightmare when you try to calculate these things, especially backpropagation. So you can use convolution where you take a group of neurons and then you connect them to one neuron in the second layer. So you connect a group just to one. And so now there are fewer connections, and that means less computation. So as you do the backpropagation algorithm, you don't have this computational explosion 
So he worked on convolutional networks, which were patterned after the kind of interconnections they found actually in biological systems. And he was able to avoid this computational meltdown. And he, and he applied these convolutional neural networks to handwriting recognition, optical character recognition, uh, image processing. And he was very successful at that. And he's published a lot of work in these convolutional neural networks. Now, for instance, using this method, they developed uh, using uh, optical character recognition, they developed a check recognition system where, where, the, where, where a bank could actually read a check. And they could, you know, they could transcribe what was written on the check. And that was deployed by NCR and other companies. And his software was reading more than 10% of all checks in the U.S. Wow. Back, back in the, back, you know, back about 10 years ago. In 1996, he joined AT&T Research Labs as head of the Image Processing Research Division. And there he worked on an image compression technology called Deja Vu. Ooh. Now, it's, it's abbreviated D-J-V-U, Deja Vu is how it's pronounced. And it was basically designed to be a replacement for, you know, PDF, the, the portable document file that Adobe came out with. And it actually compresses more effectively than PDF. So he worked on Deja Vu, and uh, he worked on the, the, the both the file format, the software platform, and... Uh, and it and it's now been used to compress images all over the internet, including say the Internet Archives. It's there too. It was a very successful um, software development there while it was at AT&T. After AT&T, had a short stint as a fellow at the NEC Research Institute in, uh, and then after that he joined the New York University in 2003 as professor of computer science, uh, computer neurosciences. At NYU, he worked primarily on energy-based models for supervised and unsupervised learning for object recognition and mobile robotics. Now, what what that means is um, what they what he tried to do he he tried to assign a, a, an energy value for each of the neural act, activation levels, and he tried to organize the this energy assignment so that when the neural network had the correct output the overall energy function was lowest. And so he basically developed a method to calculate neural output to minimize the, uh, to minimize the, the energy function. And that, that was a very successful way for the algorithm to converge quickly. So it's all basically statistics and convergence, and he worked on that. And, and I got some very excellent results with that. He has uh, organized a lot of uh, conferences. Uh, in, in 2014, he, he, he won the IEEE Neural Network Pioneer Award for his pioneering work in application of neural networks, machine learning. He became the founding director of the New York uh, Center for Data Science. And in 2013, he became the first director for the Facebook AI Research Division. And so, and of course, Facebook is using AI to sort of keep track of all the people on the, uh, you know, all the millions of people to look at your patterns of activity so they can deliver ads that match what you're interested in. They can deliver a news feed that matches what you're interested in, and they analyze you using machine learning to figure out how to optimize your Facebook experience. Now, other people might say they use it to optimize the invasion of privacy, but from their point of view, it's a feature in that they can make your experience better. He's chair and organizer of the Learning Workshop held every other year at Snowbird, Utah. 
He's co-director of the Machine and Brain Research Program at the Canadian Institute for Advanced Study called CIFAR. Now, this is the deal. He's got a lot of hobbies. This guy's an interesting guy. He loves to sail, and he owns two small catamarans. Now, when he was in high school and college, he played the recorder in various winds instruments in a Renaissance ensemble. In fact, I can hear him playing right now. I think now. we can. This is his Renaissance ensemble. This is a recording from his uh, his experience when he was there in uh, just in uh, in college. There, hey, in the Renaissance ensemble. If it ain't Baroque, don't fix that's it. That's right. That is so perfect. If it ain't Baroque, don't fix it. Yeah, that's right. So he's kind of a classical uh, classical musician there in France, and then and then he started living in New York, and he started going to the jazz clubs uh, in New okay. York. So he became a jazz. A, a jazz expert, and mm-hmm. he now loves jazz, even though jazz is really not really French-like. No. But he says jazz was a major contribution to the uh, to the music of the world, and he just loves jazz. So he plays jazz improvisation with some of his friends there in New York. And um, I tried to find some of his recordings, and I could not find any of his jazz recordings. So all we uh, have is, is, this. is his Renaissance recording from, from college and, and high school. And by the way... I believe this is the Stratford University Choir that is in oh, com- yes. accompanying the ensemble. Oh, I think so. Ensemble, That's yes. right. Now, his, um, his webpage, and he's got a lot of interesting stuff on his webpage. You can, and you can actually look at pictures of all his model airplanes there, too, as well as copies of all of his research. YanLacoon.com. Y-A-N-N dot Lacoon, L-E-C-U-N dot com. It's really a lot of fun to look through this. He put a lot of stuff on there. He's an interesting guy. Jan LeCun, the first director of the Facebook AI Research Division. Very interesting. <laughs> and that's all you needed to know about him and more. And hope you're paying attention because your knowledge that you just gained could lend, uh, lead to free lunch. Uh, we're going to play the pop quiz in just a minute here on Tech Talk <laughs> on Federal News Radio. 1500 AM, 820 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2. On the web at Stratford.edu and federalnewsradio.com. Watch us do the show by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. <laughs> If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has experienced IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with exceptional Accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Learn more about Stratford's up to $15,000 IT scholarship competition. Application deadline is September 30th for those who qualify. Register today at stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, 
and IT careers, here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, the security guard at the front desk, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Jim Russ. Thanks for tuning in this morning, and thanks for playing the pop quiz. In Profiles in IT, we just finished talking about Jan LeCun, a computer scientist who is currently the director of Facebook's artificial intelligence research, which, as you can imagine, is a pretty stressful job. So he's got a few ways to let off steam. Today's question is simply, tell me one of Jan LeCun's hobbies. If he can give us a hand with that, well, that would be great. And the way to do that will be by picking up your phone and giving us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're flying your ultralight battery-powered model airplane in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. The international line, a constant pain in our backside, but you can call it anyway, 877-936-39333. Andrew Mitchell, our adjunct professor for prize distribution and crowd control, standing by to take your calls. So, dial now. Well, let's talk about the autumn equinox. Yeah. You know, each year there are, we have, we have two equinoxes a year. And uh, this is the moment when the day and the night are equal. At the equinox, the daytime, it's 12 hours of day and 12 hours of night. And that happens twice a year. Because, you see, as the Earth goes through its seasons, it basically tilts on the axis. So we're in the northern hemisphere. So when the northern hemisphere is tilted toward the sun, it's summertime. And then as it tilts back the other way so that it's tilted away from the sun, it becomes wintertime. So as we transition and tilt from tilting toward the sun to tilting away from the sun, the sun passes directly over the equator. And at that moment, we have reached the equinox. Now, it's important to know that the equinox this year... It's today. September 22nd. 9.54 p.m. I thought I felt something. It was when the sun was directly over the equator. And... um, and that that day, that time was according to the U.S. Naval Observatory, which of course we use since it's it's the it's, closest it's the closest observatory to the station. Mm-hmm. So that is that is the one that we use. Now the uh, and so this happens every year the equinox. And so I thought you'd like to know exactly what it meant. So equinox, equal day and equal night. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard every Saturday morning at nine on Federal News Radio. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, or on the web at stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has experienced IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with the future in cybersecurity. Learn more about Stratford's up to $15,000 IT scholarship competition. Application deadline is September 30th for those who qualify. Register today at stratford.edu cybersecurity. That's stratford.edu cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Let's talk about some apps to keep your kids from texting and driving. Mm-hmm. This is becoming a big problem. People, they, they, they can't stay away from their cell phone if it's bumping, you know, if it's, they're getting, it's beeping and vibrating and giving them all sorts of notifications. It's just hard to stay away from it. So there are a few things that you can do uh, in order to just turn off all those notifications, which I think would be a big help to keep kids off of their cell phones. Now, iPhone has something very nice. They have something called Do Not Disturb. Mm -hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. usually that's used, you know, you're going to sleep at night. You can put it on Do Not Disturb, and, and you'll get no notifications in the middle of the night. But they've added an additional feature to Do Not Disturb. So you can you can click on the Do Not Disturb. You, you go to Settings, and then you click on Do Not Disturb, and then it will open up a menu, and there's something called Do Not Disturb While Driving. And when you click on Do Not Disturb While Driving, you've got three options. One would be to automatically turn on Do Not Disturb. Does or, it figure that out because you're, because you're moving, moving? Because uh-huh. of the GPS. Or it will say, when connected to Bluetooth, car Bluetooth, Turn on Do Not Disturb, or you turn it on manually. Pick whichever one fits your situation. So your kids, you could actually set up the Do Not Disturb to be automatically. So whenever your kids are in the car, they won't get any phone calls. They won't get any text messages. They'll get no notifications. That's actually a pretty nice feature. Not bad. Now, they can turn it off, but but you could say you expect them to leave it on. And I think it's a way from the, to stay away from it. They're also, but that's just the, uh, you know, the iPhone. If you've got an Android... There are a couple of other apps that you can use. And now these these apps work in either Android or iPhone. One is Lifesaver. Now, Lifesaver blocks all text and calls while driving. It also alerts parents when a child arrives at their location safely. It tracks mileage and does a lot more. And it's available for iOS and Android. And it offers many parental options. So Lifesaver is a very good way for parents to keep track of what their kids are up to and also to block this text while driving. Now, of course, they could they could disable it, but then the parents can tell that. There's also an AT&T drive mode. Now, this is a simple one, but it gets a lot of things right. It automatically turns on when it detects movement above 15 miles an hour. It blocks all notifications. It would then automatically disable itself a few minutes after the vehicle stops moving. Even though it's called an AT&T app, it's available for all users regardless of the carrier, 
and it's available for both iOS and Android. So either one of these options are pretty good options. Have you have you ever gotten the reply back from when you've texted somebody who has this turn on? No, I've never. I done actually that. have. It's it, it, it. The message comes up. Um, I I I can't text right now. I'm driving or something along that. But yeah. it says uh, I I can't be disturbed right now or something along that line. That is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Have you seen? There's a Ford commercial out. Ford has a lot of child, well, child, but uh, you know. Uh, young driver protection things in some of the new cars where you can preset how loud the radio goes. Wow. You can, <laughs> when, when you get in the car, and I suspect it has to be if they put the phone on Bluetooth, mm-hmm. that it will forward all the calls directly into voicemail and their phone won't ring while they're in the car. And you can actually also set the top speed that the car will go. Wow. That's pretty neat. That is pretty neat. That's right. That is a great idea. Mm-hmm. Amazon is having a problem with fake reviews. Now, thousands of Amazon account holders are part of an extensive, invisible workforce which is fueling the fraud economy. Buyers are unwittingly purchasing inferior or faulty products. Now, the system that creates these reviews is a complicated web of subreddits. These are, you know, these these are forums, invite-only Slack channels, private Discord servers, closed Facebook groups. This is where they communicate. And... uh, and they basically have ways to get paid for doing these great reviews. Now, you have to be a verified user. And so what will happen is that these companies will reimburse you if you buy their product with, um, you know, with your credit card. And then if you leave a five-star review. So it looks like a verified user is getting a product and getting reimbursed for it. And um, Amazon can't detect it. Now, there are now artificial intelligence um, um, tools out there that sort of look for the the hallmarks of like a fake review. They sort of because they tend to cut and paste the same thing. They mm-hmm. tend to say the same thing, and and so they've done a study on it. And uh, you know, about twelve percent of the reviews are fake on 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 Amazon, and that that is a um, you know a lot. It turns out that in a 2011 survey, 87% of consumers said that a positive review confirmed their decision to purchase a product. But really, of people who buy products, only 3 to 10% ever leave reviews. And the only way that an Amazon product can really get up in the listing is have a lot of five-star reviews. The only way to do it is to buy it. And so companies are buying reviews. That's That's crazy. And so... Typically, what I will do when I look at the Amazon, okay, this data says 9.1% of the reviews, they call them unnatural. Mm-hmm. Just, it's just the phraseology. So what I do is I look for, if there are several thousand reviews, too many to be faked. And then if you will look at, suppose there are like some several, like three or four five-star reviews just glowing, and then you'll see three or four reviews that are that just say this product is terrible. There's a complete disconnect. So I'm thinking those really five-star reviews are fake and that the the bad reviews are the real one. So you start looking for an unnatural flow in these things. You start looking for the for the bad reviews. But Amazon's got a problem here and they don't really have a, they don't have a way to um to fix it. But it's going to be coming a bigger and bigger problem. South Korea's largest cryptocurrency exchange is under investigation. Now, this is the thing with Bitcoin and these cryptocurrencies. You know, there's a lot of fraud going on with these, especially if you store your 
cryptocurrency at, at one of these repositories. See, if I were going to buy Bitcoin, I would take my Bitcoin and put it on a, a thumb drive, and I'd store it. Mm-hmm. I'd store it at home safely. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't put it on one of these central repositories. And then when I wanted to spend my Bitcoin, I'd have my Bitcoin wallet on a thumb drive, not even hooked to the Internet. And then if I want to spend a Bitcoin, I just put my thumb drive into my computer and then spend my Bitcoin. Now, I'd, I'd make certain to have my thumb drive backed up because if you have – suppose you have $50,000 worth of Bitcoin, you'd hate to lose it. And it gets it. lost or corrupted, as we know, thumb yeah, drives. Yeah, you would, to... you, would, you would hate to do that. And so – so the, the the authorities are investigating UpBits computers and account sheets to review their crypt, crypto holdings. They haven't really pressed, pressed charges yet, but it appears that UpBit users are withdrawing their funds from the exchange in mass, and there may not be enough money to cover everything. South Korea shifted focus from outright ban of cryptocurrencies to defining regulations for cryptocurrencies. This is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. Four executives from two different cryptocurrency exchanges, including CoinNest, South Korea's fifth largest cryptocurrency exchange, were also arrested last month for charges of embezzlement and fraud. Are you obsessed with taking selfies? No, okay, so is, do you think it's <laughs> selfitis or selfieitis? No. There's only one eye, so yeah, I guess you're selfitis, a selfitis. Selfitis, I mean, you could be, it could be selfieitis, but... But it's not spelled selfieitis. No, it isn't, no. This psychologist, they, the psychologist, they're very learned people. They call them I'm selfitis. I'll back off. Selfitis, because, because you see, if you take selfies all the time, you're focused on yourself. Yes. And so it, you have a case of self-itis. Uh-huh. And the selfie uh-huh. is merely is merely a symptom. It's, 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 right. it's, it's a, a manifestation. A manifestation of self-itis. Mm-hmm. Chances are, you, if you have self-itis, you've got a genuine mental condition that makes you feel compelled to constantly take photos of yourself and post them on social media. So there, there, there are a few people. The Kardashians, I'd say, have self, self itis. Yes, wouldn't you think I so? I would agree with that. They, with a capital S. With a capital S. Now the term's been around since 2014 to describe obsessive selfie taking, <laughs> but it has not been backed by science until now. Mm-hmm. Researchers from Nottingham Trent University and the the Aganar School of Management investigated the term and discovered six motivating factors. <laughs> Okay. Those who suffer from self-itis generally are seeking to boost their confidence. They're seeking attention. They're seeking to improve their mood, make memories, confirm, conform with their social group, and be socially competitive. Typically, those with the condition suffer from a lack of confidence and are seeking to fit in with those around them. And they display symptoms similar to other potentially addictive behaviors. Now that its condition has been confirmed, it's hoped that further research can be carried out to learn how and why people develop self-itis. Well, this is this is like a subset of what social media, in particular Facebook, has done to us. Everybody, That's right. everybody shows the best parts of their that, life. Nobody it, ever shows exactly. where they got drunk and trashed the living room they on never, Facebook. They, never they don't do show that. that. It's everybody's perfect little life. And that's sort of what that's kind of that's kind of another example of selfitis. And then mm-hmm. I guess people that post all the time in Facebook, maybe that would be postitis. Postitis, I like that. There could, yes. there could be another 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 item there. I think there. you may be onto something. Now Amazon can now drop off deliveries to your trunk as well as to your home. I'm not sure I, sh- I like this. As a Prime member, you get you can get your Amazon packages securely delivered right to your vehicle, parked at home or at work or any other 
locations which are near your address book. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the um, the thing. They've actually had trouble with people getting deliveries in their house. Did you hear, read the case last week where somebody delivered a package to the person's house and the delivery man stole the puppy? And the, I did not hear that. They stole they, the puppy. They stole the guy's puppy. <laughs> and uh, and then he emailed Jeff Bezos. No, 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 no he worked. Dear some, Jeff. Yeah, Jeff my Bezos. Dog is gone. He said, you know, your guy came to deliver the thing. My puppy was gone. Jeff Bezos answered his email. He really? Said, I'm going to check into it. They they contacted a guy in his city. The guys and the delivery guy said, no, I didn't see a dog. But Wow. But they were suspicious. So the employee, the Amazon employee, went to the house of the delivery guy and found, found the dog. Found the dog. <laughs> and they returned it. <laughs> Sounds like a K an episode of Monk. It was it was a it was a major thing. So anyway, um so people are saying, look, I don't want to open up my house. And so they got the idea, well, why don't we just drop it off to the trunk of your car? Now that's actually not bad. Sometimes you want to get a delivery package while you're at work. So if you've got a twenty fifteen or newer car that has OnStar or mm-hmm. Volvo, Volvo on call. Now that would be in a Chevrolet, a Buick, a GMC, a Cadillac, or a Volvo. You can actually link your Amazon key to either On OnStar or the Volvo on call service. That's crazy. Then what you do is the Amazon driver. They're looking around. They can use satellite location to locate your car. This is crazy. And then when they get there. They notify the service that they've got a package to drop off. The service unlocks the trunk. They put it in the trunk, and then they close the trunk. Do they notify you at the time that this is happening? Yeah, you are notified whenever there's a, whenever there's a delivery. Now, this in-car delivery of, is available in 37 cities now, including Atlanta, Austin, Houston, and most importantly, Washington, D.C. Wow. And so um, they started. They, they had a small pilot of this thing in in uh, Germany, and uh, and it worked uh, quite well. So people that don't want to let someone in their home may not mind letting them in their trunk. So yeah, I, I guess you're a, right. As opposed to letting the box sit on the front porch and get stolen. So, well, and you know what? That's a very valid point. So, what are your feelings about this? I th- I I think the car is a better option. You I think re- so? Yeah, I, because it's it's limited vulner- vulnerability. They're not in the whole house. That's true. But so here, I'm I'm thinking this. Uh, this is the next the next scam. Mm-hmm. Uh, people start scoping out parking lots, waiting for the Amazon guy to show up. Something goes in somebody's car, they leave, and then people break into the car. Break and in steal. the trunk, yeah, that so, would be. You know, I that mean, would be the next there's thing. There's always something to screw up a good idea. That would be the next thing. But at least they've got to break into the car. They just can't go waltz up to your your house and, your house and take it because people well, f- people follow the delivery truck and they just scarf up stuff as it's being delivered. Do you know this? <laughs> you don't know this because I'm about to tell you this. The the other radio station where I work, which is not not necessarily in a bad part of town uh-huh. in Baltimore. Uh, when the FedEx guy comes, there is an uh, a uh, off-duty cop who follows him, follows that truck around in his in his uh, personal vehicle to make sure that nothing happens to the uh, to the UPS guy. Wow, is, isn't that crazy? Yeah, he that waits out is. in the parking lot, makes sure the truck stays in one piece. Amazing. I know. Let's talk about this Twitter application. I was going right to say, this really grabbed my attention. Twitter. Twitter. There is a uh, listen, fast food truck. Yeah, there there is this little fast food company. They just started up about six months ago. Koji. It's it's Korean barbecue. Right, I gotta find this. While you're and talking, listen, okay? there are only two Koji trucks in 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 L.A. These are in Los <laughs> Angeles, and these guys started twittering. 
So what they do, they, 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 they basically are using Twitter in order to tell customers where they're located, what the latest deal is. So, for instance, one of the Twitters that came out this morning was Koji Special at the Trucks in the Alaba uh, uh, Grilled Asparagus with Yellow Nectarines and Sesame Seeds. That was their, that was their special. This sounds good. It's in yeah. L.A.? Do they deliver? No, no, it's it's a truck, and so it's only two trucks. I know. And what they funny. what and what they do is, and then they Twitter their location. I'm at first and fourteenth, and so people sign up for the Twitter. They look at the things are, and 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 there's kind of a game of trying to go find the truck and and get your barbecue. <laughs> this Koji, which has only been in business for six months, is actually known nationally because they have such a huge Twitter following. They're about to get another one. So this, uh, it, yeah, the Koji, yeah, here we go. It launched last November, and herds have been following it around. Now, Koji wasn't the first uh, fast food place to use Twitter, but it was the one that was really the most successful. So this is actually, the name is recognizable throughout the country, and they only have two taco trucks, and they've only been doing this since last November. Koji is in Santa Monica at Bergamont Station, 2525 Michigan Avenue. <laughs> there, there you go. So you can sign up for the Twitter, and you guys in Washington, maybe maybe we could do a little well, Twitter here, cause there, because there are a lot of fast food trucks yeah. out there. Python is the fastest-growing computer language. Python uh, in 2019, uh, Python growth will significantly outstrip other languages, according to Stack Overflow. This projection is based on the number of developers viewing questions about Python. Stack Overflow is the world's largest online community for developers with more than 50 million registered users. In the five years uh, prior to 2017, June, Python has gone from the least popular language to the most popular of the top six programming languages with a 2.5 increase in views in the Python in the Python Q&A questions. The popularity of Python is due in part to its flexibility with the language used, and the language is used regularly for web and des desktop developers. It's used by sysadmins and, and, and developer, uh, operations developers, and it, it's also recently been used by data scientists and machine learning engineers. And there's also a Python-like language that sits on top of Ethereum. So it, it, it spans many, many application areas and many, many development communities. So, so Python has become very popular. It's a, it has a strong community, as, and the language itself is readable, it's concise, and it has a complete standards library. Probably the disadvantage, it runs a little slower, but, you know, people are developing applications want something that's easy to develop, and this data science and scientific applications are areas to go. So if you want to learn a language, Python's a way to go and apply to Ethereum. You might, you might be able to do a big ICO. Thanks for joining us this week for Tech Talk Radio, heard every Saturday at 9 on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2, and on the web at federalnewsradio.com. Learn more about us and hear all of our past programs by going to stratford.edu, scroll to the bottom of the page, and click on the Tech Talk icon. You can watch us do the show live every Saturday by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. Tech Talk is a production of Stratford University and Dr. Richard Schertz. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. 
Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.